Good evening, everybody. Good to see you again here, and welcome to another winter summer day here in Denver, and welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Jesse, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and it's good to see all of your faces. It's good to worship together here with you. Now, if you're just visiting with us, or if you're just visiting an Anglican church for the first time, we are in a season called Lent, and it's a time where we call it a heightened focus, a heightened focus of intentionality on how God wants to change us and transform us, how we can give our minds and our hearts more over to the work of God in our lives, both what he wants to do inside of our hearts and inside of our lives, and also the work that he wants to do through us in the world. It's a time where we take captive every thought that's going on in our minds, and we specifically turn our hearts. We're aware of the patterns and habits that we all have in our lives. We make ourselves open to the work of God. Now, this is not to say we don't do that the rest of the year. We absolutely do that. But Lent is a special season where we give a heightened focus to that. And to do that for this season, we are walking through the book of Mark together. And we're on Mark chapter 6 this week. And as we walk through the book of Mark, we're specifically looking at how the life and the teaching of Jesus specifically call us to be transformed, both for our own sake and, again, for the sake of the world around us. And as we look at this passage today here in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see how the life and teaching of Jesus, this example where he's in Nazareth teaching, is going to lead us and draw us, hopefully, into a life where we embrace hopeful expectancy, where we cultivate a hopeful expectancy for the work of God in our lives and the lives around us. That is, as we walk through our lives Together with God, it's not just lives that we live in a reactive way, where we approach God and say, God, how can you help me with this problem? Or how can you protect me here? Which, by the way, it's good to come to God with those things. God, how can you help me? God invites us to come to him with our needs and our desires and for our protection. He does invite us in that way. But he also invites us to live in a proactive and intentional way. How can we live with a outward, hopeful expectancy, proactively seeking what God wants to do in us and through us. It's saying, I wonder, I just wonder how God will show up this year in a way that I wasn't expecting. Or it's saying, I wonder if God has somebody specifically for me to bless this week or this month as I think about all the relationships that I have for his glory. I wonder if there's some sort of beauty about himself or the world that God is going to reveal in the life of someone else or in his creation as I go through this week. It's hopefully expecting that God reveals something about himself to you. I wonder how God can change my heart or help me move past this addiction or help me change this pattern. This idea of hopeful expectancy is walking together with God with the words hope and expectancy that God will specifically move and work in our lives. And just to put a Lenten lens on it, I used that word earlier, cultivate, intentionally. Cultivate is sort of a building because hopeful expectancy is often more about a posture and a pattern in our lives than it is just about a feeling that we hopefully have that spontaneously emerges in our hearts. Now, Eugene Peterson wrote about this. He he said, uh, uh, he was speaking about feelings and patterns and, and habits that we have, and he, he said this. He said, we all live in an age of sensation and feeling. 
And we think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity to it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act our ways, act our way to a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel our way to a new way of acting. That we can act our way to a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel our ways to a new way of acting. And he goes on to say, worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in worship. And I would go on to add to that, Lent, our, our season of intentionality of walking together with God, is us acting in a way intentionally in our lives that cultivates a feeling, Lord willing, of hopeful expectancy that God would work and move. It's like we read in Psalm 16 at the beginning of the service. I set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. This is how God wants us to live with hopeful expectancy. It's how the scriptures call us to live. It's how Jesus calls us to live. As a part of the season of Lent, as we look at this chapter, I want to ask us as a church, all of us as individuals sitting in the pews, but also us as a whole body, especially during the season of Lent, do we live with a hopeful expectancy for the work of God? Do we feel like we're just sort of trudging through, barely surviving in our faith lives? Which, by the way, if that's where you are, that's okay. You're welcome here. This is a place to wrestle through those challenges. But are we hopefully expecting the work of God to show up in our lives, in this church, in our lives as individuals? That's the question I think this passage asks us to answer. So let me just pray for us, and then we'll jump in here to Mark chapter 6. Or as we sung earlier, teach our hearts to love your truth. Teach our hearts, Lord, to love the things that you love. Guide us into the depth of life that you have called us into. Give us the power of your spirit to become who you want us to be. And I do pray that you would foster and build within this congregation a sense of hopeful expectancy for your work in our lives. We pray this in your great and holy name. Amen. Okay, there's, uh, there's Bibles in front of you in the Red Bibles. If you'd like to turn there, you can get on your iPhones or your iPads, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And we're looking uh, at this account where Jesus goes into the town of Nazareth. And it's really an account of people doing the very opposite of what I hope that we do here, which is they were living with unhopeful and bad expectations for who Jesus was. And we want to live with hopeful expect- expectation for what Jesus does in our lives. So just to give us context, Jesus is moving through the area. He's teaching. He's bringing new words about his kingdom. He's interpreting the Old Testament for the Pharisees and the people around them to say, all of this is actually pointing to me. He's doing miracles to show that he is sent from the Father. He's declaring the kingdom of God. He's inviting people into faith. He's giving them new life. And he's inviting them and us into hopeful expectancy. And it says as he comes to this his hometown in Nazareth, it's like he enters into Nazareth with all this momentum. There's all these things that are going well in his ministry. People are responding. He's starting to get some enemies, which, you know, oftentimes if you're getting enemies, that means you're doing something that's creating change. So he's, he's doing well. He's entering into Nazareth with all this momentum. And all of a sudden, it's like there's this stop. There's this pause. He hits a wall in his ministry, in his hometown of all places. And as you read through the account, verses 1 through 3, you'll see that Jesus starts to teach. And there's two feelings that sort of emerge in the crowd there as they're hearing him teach. 
First, there's a word that it says they're astonished in many versions. It says, at first, the crowd was astonished. Where did Jesus get this teaching? Where did he get this authority? How did he do these miracles? So they were genuinely astonished at the work of Jesus. But then it goes on to say that they were offended. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know this guy? Didn't we see him sort of run through the streets when he was a kid? Don't we know his family? How is it this same Jesus is doing and saying these same things? And it says literally that they took offense to him. And the word there that it uses in the Greek is escandalo, where we get the word scandalized. They were scandalized. They were offended. They were scandalized by the very presence of Jesus and the claims that he was making. So here's the first problem we see with that congregation there in Nazareth is that they were, in a sense, projecting themselves and they were projecting their specific expectations for Jesus onto Jesus. They said, this, this is the carpenter's son. Now he's a carpenter. He's, he's one of us from Nazareth. Us people from Nazareth, we're not important people. Carpenters aren't important people. They're fine people. They're working class people. But Carpenters aren't important people in the grand scheme of things. They don't talk about these giant things that Jesus is talking about. We're just normal people from Nazareth trying to make it through the week. Prophets, messiahs even, these are big people. These are, as Justin shared with us last week, they would have had an expectation for Jesus to be a cedar of Lebanon. These are significant people that demand presence and respect. They aren't people that talk about mustard shrubs or small little mustard trees. They're not working class people like us. Jesus offended them because they projected what they thought he should be onto him. Many of you know in other encounters, many, when Jesus meets the Pharisees or the scribes or the elites or what we might call today the managerial class, they were offended by Jesus because he wasn't one of them. He didn't pay their dues. He wasn't from the elite. He didn't have a lot of money. And so because of the claims he was making, Jesus offended the Pharisees and the scribes because he wasn't one of them. But here he's with these people in Nazareth, one of his own. They offended him because Jesus is one of us. How could he then be the Messiah? They were offended. They were scandalized by the very presence of Jesus. So rather than living with hopeful expectancy for the arrival of God in his kingdom, they were living with their own very specific and limited expectations for the who they thought Jesus should be, and they were projecting them onto Jesus. Now this is why I like to call the Bible, and very specifically the life of Jesus, an equal opportunity offender. So we see here in the scriptures, the Pharisees were offended because Jesus wasn't one of them. The people from Nazareth are offended because Jesus is one of them. You can't win. He offends the fiscally minded because he says, give generously, give lavishly. I don't want to say give stupidly, but sort of give just with a lavishly generous heart. He offends the fiscally minded for that. He offends the self-righteous by saying, your works of righteousness are like dirty rags to God. You cannot compare to his holiness. So there is no place for self-righteousness. There is no place to look down at anyone else because righteousness only comes from me. He offends because he says, love your enemies. Love those, dare I say, with different political views than you. Share God with others, even if it's costly in a relationship. Even though people persecute you, bless them. Consider others 
actually consider them greater than yourselves and their needs higher than your own needs. Honor people equally no, no matter where they come from, no matter what class they are, no matter what they look like. Honor people equally. Endure persecution for the sake of righteousness. Turn the other cheek. <laughs> Confess your sin readily to others and be humble. Don't be lazy. <laughs> and many, many more things. Jesus is sort of like a walking offense. If you walk around with him and read what he says, at some point you're going to be offended. There's something in the call of Jesus that will offend all of us, and that's due to the conditioning of our hearts. In a small way, all of us can accidentally be like the people of Nazareth here and take offense at the life and the teaching of Jesus because we take our specific expectations and we place them on Jesus and his teaching. And when we do that, as we'll see here in a moment, we can sometimes limit the fruit of the kingdom that we experience as we walk together with him. This is why we always pray every Sunday, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a constant reminder that we are formed into his image and not the other way around. So this is the first thing they did is they projected themselves onto Jesus. We don't want to do that. And then we see they did something even worse. And that's where we get verses 4 through 6. So first they were offended, they were scandalized, and then that offense led them to antitrust, the opposite of trusting. So I'll just read this here for you in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And later Jesus meets a soldier who's not even a Jew. And he comes to him asking for healing. And it says Jesus marveled at his belief, at his faith. If only I could find faith in this, like this in all of Israel. Here it says he marveled at their unbelief. Now there's a confusing phrase in here that at first glance can lead us to some disorientation. Then you go back to it and then at second glance leads you to more disorientation. And then you think and ponder about it and pray about it for years. And then you become a pastor and you read it and you preach it to other people. And you go back to that phrase and it still leads you to disorientation. It's a disorienting phrase. It says... Jesus could do no mighty works among them. Now, when it says Jesus could do no mighty works among them, it's not meaning that God's power is dependent on our faith in any way. But it's like saying the kingdom of God, though present among them in the person of Jesus Christ, did not bear fruit there because they were not in a place to receive it. So the miracles that Jesus performed, by the way, he still did perform miracles there. It says that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. But as we look through the sweep of the scriptures, the miracles that Jesus performed primarily had two purposes. One was to bring the kingdom of God into the present, this future kingdom of healing all things. Jesus brought that into the present and he showed his kingdom. It was a way of announcing his kingdom and bringing that presence here into, the, into what people were living in their own lives. That's the first reason. The second reason Jesus did miracles most often was to demonstrate that he truly was the Son of God sent from the Father, that he was who he said he was. So the second reason he did miracles was to bear witness to his identity. And many commentators have worked back and forth on this, and I love what R.C. Sproul said. He says, and since the people of Nazareth here had already rejected the identity of Jesus, Jesus did nothing more to further confirm his identity among them. It was a form of God's judgment to them because they rejected him outright, because they placed their, they projected their ideals for him onto him. 
So another way to say that is the kingdom of God, though present to them objectively in the person of Jesus Christ, was not present to them subjectively in what Jesus did to them. Now, just to clarify, just to clarify here, it wasn't just a lack of faith that they had, like a a wrestling, a doubting, I don't know, Jesus, if you can really do this, I don't know if I trust you. That's not what they were dealing with, like normal struggles of their faith. We see an account later where Jesus meets this distraught father who has a sick daughter. And he's coming to Jesus distraught and sort of out of all sort of options. He says, Jesus, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus says to him, if all things are possible for those who believe. And you can see the father just sort of resting. He goes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus responds to him compassionately and heals his daughter. There's another time where someone encounters Jesus and Jesus meets with people who, whose faith has just been completely damaged and destroyed by the institutional religion at that time. Because people were treated so badly and abused by the institutional religion at that time, their faith suffered just in the same way that many people's faith suffers today because of institutions sometimes. And Jesus has compassion on them despite tiny little bit of faith. His compassion on them and meets them. And so if you're here today, and part of this message has your soul saying, yeah, but, (laughs) yeah, but I've prayed for things and not seen them happen, so it's hard for me to have faith. Or I've been hurt, honestly, by the church, and so it's hard for me to trust the Jesus that this church proclaims. Or I want to believe, and I want to push more into God's invitation. I want to expect him to do things. I'm just struggling to see it. The pattern of the life of Jesus is to meet us in that place, to have compassion, to know that we have those challenges. And like we read on Ash Wednesday from the Psalms, he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. That's not what this passage is talking about with the people here in Nazareth. It says that he marveled at their unbelief. And another way to translate that is he marveled at their antitrust. This is an obstinate This is saying, I will not trust you. I will willfully not have faith. It's like John chapter 20, Doubting Thomas says, I will by no means believe him. I will by no means believe him. This is a posture and a choice. The result of their posture and their choice was though the kingdom of God was present among them, it did not bear fruit. This is what that verse means. Now to bring it back to us. And to bring it back to the question that we surfaced at the beginning, what does it look like for us to not be like the people of Nazareth, but to live with a hopeful expectancy in our own lives? Well, Oswald Chambers, he wrote a devotional name to my utmost first highest. He said this, when we are rightly related to God, life is filled with spontaneous, joyful uncertainty and expectancy. So what does it look like for us to live with a hopeful expectancy in our lives? I want to quickly ping two things, especially during this Lenten season. What does it look like for us to cultivate a hopeful expectancy for the work of God? First thing we can do is that we can seek God's heart. We can intentionally seek the heart of God himself. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Psalm 16 said, I set the Lord always before me. The more we look at God's heart, his desires, his calling, his goodness, the more we lay down our specific expectations for who Jesus would be, the more we pick up a hopeful expectancy for who he actually is. The more we look to God and seek his heart, 
the more the center of the universe moves from what we need and what we think about to what God wants and his will and his purposes for the world. Now, there's a book by uh, Thomas Chalmers named The Expulsive Power of New Affection. Quite the title. And he gives a chemistry example, and, and as a former chemical engineer, I just love this example. But he was talking about lots of things in the book, but the main premise of the book is that in the Christian life, Rather than spending all of our energy focused on the bad expectations that we have for God or the bad patterns that we've fallen into or the sins that we're engaged in, not to not focus on them at all, but rather than spending all of our energy focusing on them, instead we should spend most of our energy seeking God, seeking his goodness, seeking his hope. And in so doing, the things that we need to move will naturally not have any space within us to thrive. And so he gives an example of a, of a beaker in a chemistry lab. So you can imagine like a, a cup, and I should have brought one here, but use your imaginations. So imagine a beaker that's half filled with water. There's half filled with water and half filled with air. There's often two ways that chemists go about it, uh, removing the air. You say you want to get rid of the air. The air is weak. The air is light. The air are the things I don't want in my life. One way is that you can apply a vacuum to that air. And as you draw that vacuum, you have to make sure the seal is perfect and you need this extra equipment. And vacuums are rife with problems. As someone who's been in the chemistry lab, there's leaks all the time. And then if you remove that vacuum without creating a proper seal, then what happens? It gets filled back in with air. And so one way people try to remove things from their life is they apply a vacuum to the sin in their life or a vacuum to the expectations they have in their life. And they work with all their energy to remove those things in their life, which is, I think, a it's a good thing. It's a noble thing to want to do. But he says the other way to get rid of the air is much simpler. You don't need any equipment. There are no leaks. You simply pour more water into the beaker. And as you pour more water into the beaker, it expels the excess air that's already in there. This is what the title means, the expulsive power of new affection. So the whole book is, is focused on if we build an affection for God, his will his purposes, his kingdom, that in focusing our hearts on these things, cultivating a desire for them, that it will remove the expectations that we have. It will make getting over sin that we have habitually in our lives much easier because it expels that from us because we're filling our hearts with something even greater, something that expels all those things. This is what Thomas Cramner's goal was as in, during the Reformation. He's the one that wrote the prayer book that we still use, the liturgy that we still use Rather than go in and attack on Rome and go and fight the Pope and try to say, this is actually the better theology, which he did do. He did write essays. Rather than do that, his goal, especially during the first decade of the Reformation, was to write a prayer book so that people's lives will be filled with the scriptures and filled with prayer. And so that in people moving into a robust spiritual life would be drawn into the truth. And then when he presented them with the truth, they'd be more open to God's truth. So this is what God calls us all to do, to seek his face, to pour more of his will into our lives, and in so doing, we would expel the bad things that are going on in our lives. Now, if you're here and you're participating in Lent, this is my hope for you. This is my hope that Lent isn't about doing something that's religious or trying something that's Anglican or trying to check off some boxes or just sort of going through patterns. But Lent really is about putting something on and putting something off so that we can seek the face of God more intentionally in our lives. This is the goal that we're all walking towards. 
to develop a new affection in our hearts. The second way, and this is what I'll end with, is that we can cultivate expectancy is to mark, is to remember. If you remember a couple of weeks we talked about remembering isn't just recalling to mind, but placing in front of us the good news of what God has already done in our lives and in this church and in the world. So Sometimes day to day and week to week, it's hard for us to measure and remember all the things that God is doing. And sometimes we don't see big changes of the movement of God. But when we take time to reflect and look back on what he has done, it becomes so much more apparent all the things that God has done for us. And that encourages us to develop a hopeful expectancy for his work. Now, if we look back over the life of this church, for example, it's sort of funny. As someone who's preaching, don't have specific expectations. I came into this church plant with lots of specific expectations. And it was a mix of my own expectations and maybe some things that I was talking about with other people. And I had lots of expectations for what this church would look like, who would be in it, where we would be. And the Lord, uh, I think, laughed at all of them and quickly smashed all those expectations to bits. It was quite the process. Quite a joy, no. Um, and yet here we are. <laughs> and yet here we are. A community that loves the Lord. A community that is connecting with each other both in official ways and unofficial ways. That seeks each other out. That supports each other. That loves others. That loves the community around us. We were curious about how God wants us to serve the people in the neighborhoods around us. And in the last few months, and we'll hear an announcement about this, God's given us this amazing ministry called Wiz Kids, where we get to serve family. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, that's my mic line. Just making sure you're awake. God's given us lots of ways we can serve others. He's given us a building that we can worship in, an amazing church body, a really fun dinner pattern, lots of dad jokes. He's let us baptize people we didn't even know were seeking the Lord that weren't even in this community. We got to do that here last week. Yesterday, somebody texted me out of the blue, I'm an Anglican from Baltimore, can you help? <laughs> um, and I get texts like this somewhat randomly, and a lot of them I don't respond to as quickly, or I'm just like, ah, this looks like spam. But for some reason, I felt the Lord say, respond to this person. So I responded, okay, Anglican from Baltimore, what can we do? Actually, I'm here in Denver. And it turns out, it's a really long story, I'll tell you more about it, but it turns out this guy um, came from an extremely troubled childhood. And because of his troubled childhood, he went into a lifestyle that was as far away from God as you could ever expect. He was a paramedic in downtown Baltimore, which is one of the most intense places to be a paramedic. He lived a, a lifestyle where he was, he was married and, and then not married and sort of lived a very promiscuous lifestyle. He got into all sorts of things that didn't honor God. His mom was from a Chabad background, which is the literal the literal bloodline of the Pharisees. So they're literal Pharisees present today. So they were extremely religious. His father was from a New Age background, which was spiritual and very anti-Christian. And he took a journey. Oh, and he was just recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And so he took a journey from Baltimore all the way to Portland, Oregon, by train, mind you. And had to stop a couple places because of the things that were going on with his cancer to tell his family, I've become a Christian. I've accepted the Lord. Isn't this great? And because his mom is literally a Pharisee, Chabad Pharisee, and his dad is so into New Age that he hates the things of Christ, his family threw him out on the street. 
And he ends up on the side of a highway in Portland, Oregon, catches a ride from somebody who's driving from Portland to Denver, ends up in Denver, and calls me, of all places. And he told me the cancer, the abuse from his father, he wouldn't change any of it because without it, he would not have met Jesus Christ. Said the, he said that the abuse from his father kept him from being religious because he wasn't a Pharisee that let him be open to who Jesus Christ is. Because of the cancer, he was open to what mortality of life is. And so he, with, because of all of that, he went on to accept Jesus Christ. And we got to do something very little as a congregation. Some of the money you tithe went to helping him with a hotel room and a trip to the airport where his doctor finally agreed that he could fly back to Baltimore. This is hopeful expectancy. Were we expecting this? There's no specific expectations for this. But God works and he moves. He's calling people to himself from all spheres of life. He calls us to live with hopeful expectancy in our lives. God wants us to seek him. He wants us to look for him to do things in our lives and the people around us. He wants us not to be like the people of Nazareth where we project, oh, you know, Ho-hum, Christianity's hard, we're just going to sort of drag along. He wants us to be expectant and hopeful for his work in our lives and in the community around us. This is what this passage, I believe, calls us into. So let's lean in that together. Let's not be like the people of Nazareth who had antitrust. I will by no means believe Jesus. Let us by all means hope and expect that God will work in our midst. Let me pray. Oh, yes. And... One of the other things that happened, sorry, just a quick announcement. The Berlinskis who were with us, who got to live with us for a year, we sent them off to South Carolina, just had their baby. And they came to faith and grew in their faith in this congregation. And now this baby is going to grow up in the faith because of what God has done in this church. It's all things that God is doing in us and through us and around us. So let us live again with hopeful expectancy. Thank you for the reminder. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your love, how you're active and moving in the world. We ask that you would move in our lives and our hearts. Build within us, Lord, a hopeful expectancy to look for you. We pray all of this in your great and holy name. Amen. Let's continue now with the prayers of the people.